Hi, my name's Hudson, and I'm a geoholic. How does that song not put you into a good mood? Welcome back, Geoholics, easing into episode 124, where our guest this evening is Mr. Keith Masbach, who, among other things, which we will get to here shortly, is a big Grateful Dead fan. So thank you, Keith, for making that suggestion this evening, as is Nick Smolovsky, our co-host this evening. Nick, big, big Dead fan as well, correct? Absolutely. Yeah, definitely keep on trucking. Keep on trucking. <laughs> there you go. Man, things are <laughs> happening fast and furious for the geoholics these days. You may have seen, we just announced a uh, friend of the program arrangement with Liquid Death Mountain Spring Water, which I thought was pretty fitting for us. But talk about a play on words. I mean, this is this is actually the latest venture from former Netflix creative director, Mike Cesario. And it's, in my opinion, it's freaking genius. So look for their still and sparkling mountain water in cans at a store near you. Also check them out at Liquid liquiddeath.com. They got some super cool swag and just a really cool movement that they got going on there. Of course, follow them on all social medias. And uh, let's get on with this. Connor, tell us about that opening number. Yeah, Grateful Dead, Feel Like a Stranger. Grateful Dead was an American rock band formed in 1965 in Palo Alto, California. The band is known for its electric style, which fused elements of rock, folk, country, jazz, bluegrass, blues, gospel, and psychedelic rock. For live performances of lengthy instrumental jams and for its devoted fan base known as Deadheads. Having sold more than 35 million albums worldwide, th- includes more than 200 releases, the majority of them recover or recorded live in concert. Reading is hard. Reading is tough. And I, is that where Whippets started? Do you think that's where they all started, like hanging out in the uh, parking lot of a dead, dead show? What do, you, what, what do you think about that, Nick? I'm going to plead the fifth. Ah, good that. answer, my friend. One, two, three, fifth. <laughs> how many, how, you've uh, seen The Dead, right? Uh, so I have not seen The Dead. Oh, you haven't? Uh, two, in 1995, uh-huh. uh, Jerry Garcia, the lead guitarist, uh, died. Mm. I was 12. You were 12, but yes. I was 12. So since then, though, uh, I've uh, I've been blessed enough to see the rest of the band and oh, yeah. all the other iterations, sure. like Phil Lesh and Friends and Bob Weir and Rat Dog, and nice. recently... Uh, 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 John Mayer is actually yeah. subbing in um, yeah. as lead guitarist. So yeah, I've got to see the rest of them, Billy awesome. Brinkman and such. But very cool. Little young, even at thirty-eight. <laughs> that's true. That's true. All right, here we are back in the Diamondback Lanservier Studio. Um, Again, thanks to Trent for everything he does for the show. You know, we couldn't do this without him, of course. He's been a supporter from day one. And he's also started a new endeavor. Um, he mentioned it last week, I believe, on Mentoring Mondays. So he has Mentoring Mondays, and then he now has Wisdom Wednesdays, which is kind of like a book club type thing where a group of you know folks are going to read through a... I don't know, like a, 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 a serving Bible book of some sort. There's a number of them out there. So pretty cool thing he's got going on there. I know Trent Williams, which who is Trent number two, he is helping him out with that endeavor. So some really cool things going. And uh, again, you know, Trent's everywhere for that matter. Shout out to this week's highlighted friend of the program. So shout out to the to this week's uh, highlighted friend of the program, uh, Point Man by ProStar. Uh, Point Man is a patent cloud and mobile mapping software application that captures, records, and displays the precise location and the associated uh, metadata to critical surface and subsurfaces infrastructure. Point Man 
uh, captures mission critical infrastructure data mm-hmm. with unprecedented quality and accuracy that includes t- type, depth, accuracy, depth of cover, and precise geospatial location. Pointman integrates seamlessly with the major GPS and GNSS and cable and pipe locate equipment manufacturers where Google Maps above the ground, ProStar Maps, the underground. Check them out at (laughs) www.prostarcorp.com and be sure to let them know that you're a geoholic. Definitely let them know that you're a geoholic because when you mention that for any of our friends of the program, there are definitely some um, some discounts available to you. So be sure to mention that you're a geoholic. Typically, we would do Connor O'Gorman's weekly words of wisdom right now. But since he's worn out his reading brain at this point, I'm going to take it from here. So here's a quote um, from Mr. Gilbert Godfrey. Rest in peace. This is freaking hilarious. I can't even find someone for a platonic relationship, much less the kind where someone wants to see me naked. Gilbert Gottfried, everybody. Hilarious. He's going to be missed. He's going to be missed. Let's catch up the boys just a little bit. Uh, Mr. O'Gorman, what's new, my friend? Oh, not much, you know, just uh, getting by every day, enjoying life, uh, trying to figure out what the heck's going on with inflation and trying Ugh. to hedge myself against it and you know, buying a home's a crazy process right now a days and wish I would have gotten in in 2019. So how are you hedging? I'm curious. Uh, yeah, that's a great question. I still haven't gotten, uh, gotten the full circle. I've, I've done a couple shorts on some lingering items or lingering, lingering, uh, equities out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, in my personal profile, I, I longed oil right before the, uh, w- when Russia moved a lot of troops in January over to the border, I, I longed, uh, oil, um, and just trying to find different types of ways that I can get in, get ahead of uh, recessionary proof uh, equities. So I'll Listen let you know. To you. That's that's high level stuff right there, my friend. I try, I try, I, and I don't, I do not succeed most of the time. I do not out out beat the market yet. <laughs> Keyword yet. Uh, but the Suns are in the playoffs. So what's going on with you, Nick? Yeah, so, hey, I just want to take two steps back real quick and just say that I am personally friends with the ProStar Pointman crew, and uh, they just make a fantastic software that uh, plays right into something called BYOD. It's the bring-your-own-device market, Mm. and it's a paradigm shift in kind of survey technology, and they create a great, low-cost alternative uh, software that you can download on most of your smart devices and then utilize with uh, different GNSS and things like low Locale, uh, locators for yeah. utilities like underground Sioux stuff. So just want to say it was great to hear that the friends of the program were uh, some friends of mine. They definitely um, create some great product. In terms of me, yeah, so uh, I'm actually in Tennessee right now, just west of Nashville. I'm here for the Tennessee Geographic Information Council uh, conference. There's about 200 of us uh, nerding out all over geospatial topics uh, for the next two days. And so just spending some great time uh, in the state of Tennessee, uh, talking geospatial. Looking forward to doing uh, the podcast. So appreciate y'all having me. Awesome, man. Thanks for being here. I appreciate it. Um, What's going on with you? Me? What is new? Um, I have found this product that 
basically proves that I'm like a freaking five-year-old trapped in a 54-year-old body. Um, oh, boy. Check out this website. It's called BattleBats, B-A-T-T-L-E-B-A-T-Z.com. This is like Mad Max stuff. These guys, they're taking baseball bats, and they're customizing them to yeah. look like freaking killing machines. Like, oh. there's this bat wrapped with, like, barbed wire and a bat that's got, like, a saw blade put into it and stuff. And people listening are right now are like, what? This guy has lost his freaking mind. But they're so cool. So anybody out there... My birthday is coming up at the end of the month. If anybody's looking for a gift idea, any of the battle bats be just fine. Other than that, um, USFL starts this weekend. I don't know if you guys saw that. Uh, some football in the offseason, I suppose. Happy to see it back. Uh, it was kind of popular when I was younger. Nick, you're probably too young. Connor, you're definitely too young for that. But I'm really excited to see this league come back. And they're going to do some really cool things. Like coaches are going to be mic'd up and players and refs and all this stuff. So it's really going to give people an insight into the game that I think they're not used to having. So I'm pretty excited about that. The Buffalo Bills actually took their quarterback from the USFL. Did they really? Jim Kelly played. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Back in the day, for sure. Yeah. I remember that. I can't remember who he played for. Do you know who he played for? No, no idea. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no clue. I, To be honest with you, I haven't even looked at the league to see what all cities have uh, have teams. I'm not sure if Chicago has a team this year or this time around, but uh, I'm pretty excited about it, to be honest with you. I'm, I miss football, so just something else to wager on, Connor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, hey, hot hand Scheffler, baby. <laughs> Oh, geez. Ken, I just have to ask, was yeah. it Trump that owned a team for like a hot second in the XFL or was that a different league? No, I think... The USFL. Was it USFL? Yep, was USFL. Really? Okay. Yeah. Remember the XFL though? Those guys were crazy too. They, they, they like jacked with the rules and everything. That was that was nuts. And people were able to put whatever they wanted on their on the back of their jerseys, whatever name. Like the one guy, remember, the guy that sticks out to me was he hate me. That was on the back of his jersey. So yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't ever quite understand that league. But the USFL, they're, they're legit. I'm excited to see them back. Hey, how was your uh, master's wagering, by the way? Um, my master's wagering did not do so well. Did you take Scheffler? Oh, uh, yes. Did you really? Yes. How, how soon did you take him? Uh, I took him um, uh, before. I, I, well, I had a futures bet on him to win one oh. major. Okay. Uh, at the beginning of the year, I had a nice. futures bet on him to win two majors, so Ooh. hopefully he comes in with that. Nice. Um, well, I, I've, been, I've been riding Scheffler this year, and it has paid off. Oh tremendously yep uh last year i rode camp champ which did not pay off tremendously at all <laughs> uh on top tens it did one, yeah. once or twice but um yeah i i sean our last guest yeah. uh he's been making fun of me for hot hand shuffler so i hope he hears this episode and uh yeah 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 it, it, it went well that was a, a good choice to ride the uh the hot hand shuffler for sure yeah he's, he's doing well he's kicking ass and he's only been in the been on the tour for what like two years not even that yeah two or three years yeah Ridiculous. he's 70 starts or something like that absolutely killing it yeah. All right, let's get on with this introduction of our guest. I mentioned his name earlier, Keith Masbeck. And uh, a little bit about Keith here. This is a very short summary of his bio because his bio is absolutely ridiculous, but yeah. we're going to touch on as much of it as we can. Uh, Keith is born and raised in White Plains, New York. He attended Gettysburg College. Connor, I will give you $20 if you can tell me the mascot of Gettysburg College. Uh, is it Five, as simple as four. the Patriots? No, but you're close. Go Bullets, oh. uh, where he was a political science major and in the Army ROTC. Uh, quick quick note here. There is a, a gentleman by the name of Gettysburg Eddie. 
Plank, former Major League Baseball player and member of the National Baseball Hall of Fame who attended there. Uh, Keith's hobbies include travel and reading. He, uh, he loves history and staying up on world events. His current job is being an advisor, investor, mentor, and connector for primarily early stage startups working in geospatial intelligence and related fields. We've got a really interesting conversation ahead of us. Career highlights include being a U.S. Army duty officer in Berlin the night of Thursday, November 9th, 1989, when the Berlin 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 Wall fell. It's a lot of it's a lot of words there. Jumping out of planes in the army and working in the army headquarters in the Pentagon, overseeing the twenty four seven tasking of our nation's imaging spy satellites and most of our missile warning satellites as well. He also chairs the National Geospatial Advisory Committee, Department of Interior, and was named the two thousand nineteen Geospatial Ambassador of the Year by Geospatial World Forum. Keith, welcome to the Geoholics. Thanks wow. so much for being here. And that was a very kind introduction. Um, Nick and Connor, good to be with you. I appreciate the opportunity to join you guys tonight. And um, yeah, let's 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 talk geo. Let's do that. Let's jump into this. So a couple other things. On like I said, that was just you know uh, that was <laughs> hardly any of your bio. And there's so many other things that I I, I want to touch on because I want to make sure that people understand the credentials that you have. You know, one of the things I love is that you're passionate about mentoring and coaching young professionals. That's something we talk about all the time on the show. But you've also had appearances on CNN and uh, Wired magazine videos. And these are all opportunities for you to explain geo to a much broader audience, which everybody needs to appreciate. You're also named on recent business insider list of 14, 14 entrepreneurs leading the hottest space startups. And last but not least, very focused on the security of our nation and our democracy, and increasingly the security of mankind from threats, both natural and man-made and man enhanced. Um, before we go any further, first, thank you for your service. Yes. Well, you know, I, was, I, I appreciate that. That was very kind. I'll tell you, it was a privilege to serve, um, to, to wear our nation's, the uniform of our you know, nation's military. Um, it, it was kind of a lifelong dream of mine. Wow. So kind of every day, you know, I, I, it, all, it all started with small plastic army men, uh, <laughs> and then it proceeded through GI Joes, and then it just, things mm. got better and better, you know, until I found myself yep. jumping out of a plane. So, wow. um, yeah, it was a privilege, and, uh, and, it, and it did so much for me. I, I always hoped that I just, in some small way, I gave back um, in terms of everything that I learned and, and took away from being, uh, having the opportunity to be an army officer and to lead American soldiers. So refreshing to hear that response. And uh, as, as I said, thank you for your service. And we, we appreciate that. Um, so let, let's dig into this here just a little bit. Now, I am very curious when you mentioned, you know, obviously, you're very entrenched in the security of our nation. Um, and, you know, you say the, the security of mankind from threats, both natural and man made and man enhanced. What, what, how do you define a man enhanced threat? Well, so um, you know, there are, there are things that are, that are happening on the planet. Um, we, you know, one of the things I find interesting, right. Is when they say, Oh, we got to save the planet. Um, no, the planet's going to be fine. You know, um, we're not going to be here, but the planet will recover. And I think we've seen that in areas of the world, uh, in the, in the Pacific where we did nuclear testing, there's remarkable stories about the return of wildlife in that area because, you know, people aren't going there. And so the wildlife is left to itself, left to recover, left to 
um, do what it does. So in any event, I, I think there's probably going to be fine. I'm just not sure we're going to be here to enjoy that, that reflourishing mm. of the earth. So um, I, I think it's about what we are doing. It's about natural processes that are happening. There are certainly things that change over time. Science tells us that things on the planet have changed over time that were not necessarily caused or uh, advanced by things that humans did. But now we are undoubtedly experiencing change on our planet um, that is either caused by or sped up by, you know, things that we are doing to the environment, things that we are, are, are causing, heat that we are creating, methane that we are releasing into the atmosphere. So um, that, that's kind of just the, the way I try to be very, and, and I find, unfortunately, you have to be like super meticulous in your language because people want to fight about this, you know, which is always fascinating to me. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. And it, it, it's unfortunate and scary at the same time. Well, like, you know, there was a headline last week and, and somebody pointed this out on, on Twitter. There's a headline from the UN that says we are in the express lane to having an uninhabitable earth. Yep. But what was on the front page was Will Smith. <laughs> right. And like, so we, we, we kind of got to get our stuff together. Yeah. No doubt know? about it. Um, we, we're, we aren't paying attention. Uh, I worry to the right things. Mm. I, uh, I couldn't agree more with that statement. That's for sure. So I want to do one thing real quick here. Our, our, our listening audience has grown to the point that there might be somebody listening to this episode that doesn't know the first thing about geospatial and therefore geospatial intelligence. How, how do you define those two things? Yeah. So, you know, thinking I was coming on the, the geoholics, I appreciate you sort of uh, tossing up that softball for me. Um, I spend a lot of time around geospatial people. I, you, Nick, are down in Tennessee at the Tennessee GIS conference. I gave the keynote at the Mid-America GIS conference yesterday in Branson, Missouri. So um, I love to be out and among. And like I said, during my, my keynote address, I said, you know, I'm here. I'm here among my people. And uh, I couldn't have been more happy. And I think, right, geospatial and whatever dictionary definition about about space and, uh, you know, spatial information and how things relate to one another and earth. And, um, you know, so to me, the, the whole geospatial thing is pretty straightforward about location. And, and I, and I know I'm not doing a good job of coming up with a formal definition of geospatial, but, um, I think that that's pretty straightforward. Um, the, the thing I like to do having been um, brought into this business through the lens of geospatial intelligence is that I suggest, as I did yesterday in my talk, and as I kind of had done um, as long as I've been talking about this, is suggest that the framework of geospatial intelligence is perhaps a better way to view what we do more holistically. I would argue that taking geospatial um, without the context of the broader geospatial intelligence, which I'll define momentarily, is limiting um, and kind of bounded. Um, now, there's all kinds of people that love, again, you know, we're seeing maybe there's a pattern here. People love to argue about this too. Mm. Um, but for the purposes of this, and this is my definition, there is a legal definition of geospatial intelligence that was created uh, in the National Defense Authorization Act of uh, fiscal year 2004, I think, 
And that's when the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency was created. So there is a legal definition. So federal law enshrined the term geospatial intelligence that no one had ever heard before. Uh, but, but mine's a little different. So I'm going to talk about geospatial intelligence being the intersection of four things. Remote sensing from phones to drones to aerostats to space, right? So anything that is bringing in sensing data about anywhere, that's, that's, there's, there's point one. Two, geospatial and location data and information of all types and layers. So this is from subsurface to surface to the littoral, um, all right, to, to the mountaintops, to air, to aerospace. Um, it's physical geography. It's political geography. It's human geography, right? Which then brings in history and culture and language and religion. But it's all that stuff is in there in part two. Part three is data analytics. Because if you've gone out and captured all that stuff through remote sensing and you've placed it somewhere using some reference system, or pinned it somehow, somewhere, or created geospatial products out of that remotely sensed data, it's an interesting exercise until you've done some analytics against it, because that's where you get to the so what. And I think anything you're doing is some simply an interesting academic exercise, unless it gets to a so what, unless it enables someone somewhere to make a decision and or take action. And then so the fourth part of it kind of comes along with that, is how do you present it in a way that is intuitive, that is understandable, that, that allows someone who is not an expert to rapidly grasp it and use it to make a decision. So now when you put all that together, right? So remote sensing, phones to drones, to aerostats, to space, geospatial and location data and information of all types and layers, data analytics and data visualization. Now I put this entire package together and I believe that that better describes the full range of the things that people do that they try to bin in this little bucket called geospatial that isn't sufficient to carry all that. So um, there's a long answer to your short question. No, that's fantastic. And I'm sure Nick is salivating right now. So Nick, I'm going to turn it over to you, my friend. Oh my gosh. This is, I love that. I would, uh, I could literally just like listen to that on repeat. And yeah, right. <laughs> oh, oh, Nick, watch uh, out. Man. <laughs> No, it's 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 seriously the the things that I think about on a, on the daily. Um, I'd almost would say it sounds like you would define geospatial as almost the empirical data side of it, where geospatial intelligence is taking the empirical data and making predictions, or you're modeling to make decisions, right? So it's not just going out and researching and looking at the past, but you're actively and contemporarily utilizing live quote unquote, big data, things from cell phones to drones, to satellites, you know, multiple aperture radar analysis, you've got, you know, LIDAR, you've got infrared, you've got all these different sensors collecting all of these data all the time. And so would you say, Keith, is it a fair statement to say that geospatial intelligence is taking all of that geospatialness, for lack of a better description, all of that data uh, and making actual informed decisions based on it. No, I, look, I like the way you interpreted and restated that, and I'm, I'm kind of okay with it. I am, this is where the crux of the argument often is when I'm on a college campus and I'm in a geography department and a geospatial professor, someone in the geography realm will suggest that like where they want to get into it is that remote sensing is somehow a subset of geospatial and 
All the things I've talked about are really just a subset of geospatial. And I'm less interested in the semantics and the and, and, and some sort of argument on that level than just creating a common language so we're not separated by one. Um, that's probably been one of the most um, frustrating aspects of being in this business uh, is that we all throw around terms for which we don't have a common understanding. Mm. And then again, we are by definition divided by 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 terms because i say something that means something to me but being something different to you now if we've started the conversation there it's not going to go anywhere better right um we're, we're playing telephone every time we work inside our business and so that's kind of on my um my my crusade here uh is to say man maybe this maybe this broader geospatial intelligence paradigm is an interesting again, framework by which we can think about this. And something you said, Nick, um, that, you know, and this is confirmation bias on my part, obviously, something you said that's really interesting to me and that maybe I'm going to incorporate into future discussions is we have all these new technologies coming along, right? We, we start from a place of standing on a mountaintop and surveying what we can see from there and maybe etching it onto a rock or going back into a cave and saying, there's this stream here and we're here and I see the, you know, the antelope over there. Um, and so let's get from here to there, but we've come a little way from that. And we've gotten to where we've gotten the ability to sense in this diverse phenomenology that you articulated. And we have the processing power uh, and the software to take on all this stuff and to do new and interesting things with it. And we have uh, across myriad sectors of the economy, uh, things that are being impacted by this. And so I, I think I could argue, um, you know, with your, you assisted me in this, is that as this becomes more complicated, as these new technologies come online, those of us who are practitioners in this business, that perhaps the traditional way of thinking and, and talking about geospatial fails us, mm. it's insufficient, but that there's room in the inn, if you will, by talking about it through this lens of geospatial intelligence. Sounds like uh, you would describe it. I, I, I liked how you didn't really want to posture it as a subdivision of geospatial being the archetype of term. And you've got all these sort of uh, lower things that kind of build up. But it sounds more like a big sort of Venn diagram where we have a ton of overlap and uh, it plays into each other. So, yeah, I, I, I like what you're saying. You know, so so again, speaking to the um, Mid America GIS Symposium yesterday, um, talking to the practitioners, right? They're working at utilities, they're working in cities, they're working in counties, they're working in states. They're, uh, as I said, the people down at the end of the hall in the shitty office who no one uh, knows about until something bad happens, mm -hmm. and then then they want to know where they are and why didn't we know about the flood water's coming and why didn't we understand that the architect that the infrastructure was falling apart right but the amount of technology the amount of data and information is now becoming available i think forces us to think more broadly about it right so th there are people out there who are geospatial practitioners who took maybe the one obligatory remote sensing class to get their degree and mostly what they dabbled with was landsat and well if that's you like you ain't ready for today Right. And, and I, I kind of joked, I said, look, I at a previous keynote address, I, I got very aggressive and I said, you know, if you aren't 
learning constantly, if you aren't going back to school, if you aren't taking courses online, if you aren't expanding your understanding of all of these things that are impacting your field, there are people coming up behind you who are going to take your jobs. And I said, I don't want to say that here because it didn't go over very well. So I'm not going to say that here. You know, I kind of just moved <laughs> on. Um, um, but but uh, again, we've got to think more broadly about this because we have this expanded tool set. I mean, if, if um, I don't know, like if the only tools you had were like a hammer and a screwdriver and pliers um, to do every job you had to do, but suddenly you had 50 different tool sets and metric wrenches and all the rest of the the things that, that you have, why would you stick to the same three? And oh, by the way, wouldn't your trade craft or wouldn't your way, your approach of going about the business change when you had the other 47 new tools at your disposal? And I just think that's where we are. We have evolved in terms of what geospatial practitioners are doing and what's available to them. So ought we not expand our language and how we think about it and talk about it? Is that the crux that like, like you, this is a microcosm of our society too. Like Keith's mentioning is like, at, at least in my opinion is one, if you're not learning and getting better, then you're staying stale and you're not up with the times. And I think technology is moving so far. So I, you know, I would love to hear Keith's opinion on that. Like from just anything, like you can take a finance career, whatever piece that together. And then two is what I like what Keith said is it's an echo chamber for me. Cause I'm on a crusade about academics and those type of things. It's like, you walk in and academia gets so caught up in these different types of things where like, I remember having a finance professor and I went back and forth on spending, you know, a majority of my class time in the dividend discount model. Tell me one investor that uses the dividend discount model. And so like, I think to Keith's point is, I think this is a a macro of Mm. our society. Would you agree with that, Keith? Yeah, absolutely. And, And look, you've touched on another thing, which is, um, for 10 years, I was the CEO of the United States Geospatial Intelligence Foundation. So we sat right at the intersection of academia and government and industry, 250 corporate members. Uh, we accredited, by the time I left there, about 20 schools to get grant GeoInt certificates, uh, $100,000 in scholarships a year. So I was very fortunate in that position to spend a lot of time on campuses, Connor, and there is this tension on campuses right now, which is they are in the academic business. Mm -hmm. And when you use the T word, when you suggest that there should be training that's done there, that people should be able to emerge with a, um, you know, a a skill set, a defined skill set, ready to do things upon graduation. Um, it's a bit of an anathema. Now I'm, 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 I'm indicting all of academia with a broad brush here. And I understand that. And there are certainly exceptions where people have a more evolved view, but yes, I agree. I'd like to see people coming out of schools, right? Like a computer science major knows a little bit about a lot of stuff, but a person coming out of a coding boot camp knows how to code in R, mm-hmm. right? And who's more valuable on day one? Um, and who, who's, who's contributing immediately out of the box. Now that's, that's one small example and actually comes from uh, a personal experience with one of my kids. So, um, the, the other, the other thing I think you touched on is this idea of being a lifelong learner, man. Um, I, you, you kind of restated something that I say all the time, which is, I think you're either learning and growing or oxidizing and mm-hmm. dying. Yep. 
And, and I look, I get for science geeks, we're doing both at the same time. I, I, I get it. Right. <laughs> um, but, but, but I think the contrast is important. It's something that certainly, again, my kids have heard over and over and over. Um, you gotta, and, and then, and then even if you accept that Connor at the macro level, um, you damn sure got accepted in the geo world mm-hmm. because things are changing so fast and there are so many more opportunities, um, uh, everywhere you look in every part of what we do, that if you aren't learning and growing, you're just simply not going to be productive. You're going to get stale. You're going to be replaced by somebody who is able to take advantage of all the things that are arriving and apply them to get to that. So what, in whatever part of the economy that is. Yeah. It seems like across geospatial in general, like academia just can't keep up with the evolution of technology and applications and things like that. Um, so I mean, what is the solution? I mean, it, it just seems like we're at a point in, uh, in time where geospatial is, I mean, it's such a broad term, but my goodness, it, it applies to almost everything, everything around us. Yeah. You know, look, we, we could get down a whole rabbit hole here on, um, on our whole educational system. When I, when I was growing up, there was the ability for people who kind of said, you know what, I'm not going to college. It's not for me. I can't afford it, whatever it was. And they were able to go to vocational training and nobody expected them to sit in algebra two and trig. Right. But rather they were out learning a skill that they could uh, build upon and learn whether that was, you know, auto repair or, um, you know, uh, computer repair at the time, whatever it was, they were learning to do things that uh, not going on to college, but giving them a skill. Well, I think there are things that could be taught at that level with respect to the geospatial profession. Mm-hmm. Think what you could do in a community college setting in terms of turning somebody out who has, has certainly experienced some academic discourse, but also has, has been, again, maybe exposed to the T word, to training in mm-hmm. that environment and, and walking out of a community college again, ready to contribute significantly to our field. Um, And so I think there ought to be multiple pathways into what we're doing. And there ought to be really easy ways to go back all during the course of your career and continually be refreshed and to pick up new things. And I think obviously that's where professional societies and associations and so forth come in. The types of things I'm sure, Nick, that you're experiencing in Tennessee and that I saw in, in Branson this week, the short courses, the you know, the software companies teaching tips and tricks or their latest release because, because that's what you got to be doing. Yeah. Go ahead, Nick. I'm sure, you know, with your background, you know, being on the uh, academic side, as well as working, you know, uh, on on the private side, um, what, what can you add to that? I just want to start by saying I may have used the oxidizing line on a few pickups uh, for dates when I was in college as a nerd when I was a kid. <laughs> How'd that work? I'm not going to admit if it was successful or not, but... It wasn't then. <laughs> you're either expanding or decaying, you know? Uh, no, uh, there's so many things I wanted to bring up uh, just listening to y'all. I will say, so recently, uh, just on the community college um aspect. Uh, Recently, I've been part of the Austin Community College District. So in Austin, Texas, there's a few campuses that wrap around this uh, community college. They produce, they have a a, a GIS and GE program. So uh, geographic information systems and geospatial engineering. 
they produce, um, they are roughly, they have about 200 plus students per year. And every two years, they're producing 200 plus graduates in uh, an associate's degree or a GIS uh, certificate. And these people are getting placed into these jobs. In Austin, last week, I did a search on Indeed uh, for jobs that had uh, something to do with GIS. And there were over 430 job mm. availabilities just wow. in the Austin area alone that required some type of geospatial. And that type of geospatial might not be doing R and doing heavy you know, scripting and um, statistics. It could be very much so being a technician going out with a tablet and collecting readings off of a meter on a pipe or a valve somewhere. And it's just so interesting to me that geospatial has grown uh, very quickly. And yes, there's highly academic sides, but there are absolutely tangible utilitarian sides to going out and collecting data or, you know, simply sifting through data. Um, so yeah, I, I, I like what, I like what I'm hearing. I, I think we're at a very interesting moment. When I was uh, researching you a little bit, Keith, to make sure we were ready for this uh, this podcast, one of the things I noticed that you had said um, in, in kind of your biography was that we are in a geospatial moment. And I, I, think, uh, I think this kind of all echoes that. Can you talk maybe through a little bit more on that geospatial moment, what you're seeing right now? I mean, we mentioned earlier, or I mentioned like the space race, and you see these figures like Elon Musk on the private side, but on the uh, even on the governmental side with with um, the Chinese uh, having a space station right now and the Indian government doing such fantastic things. I'd love to hear more about what you think, uh, what this geospatial moment we're in, especially when a community college is putting out 200 students every year or so uh, and placing 400 plus jobs right now. So, I, I mean, I love that statistic and I love the research you did. And because I'm a New Yorker, right, I'm going to go glasses half empty here. <laughs> and I'm going to say, I'd, I'd like to see when you did your Indeed search, how many of those people claim they needed somebody with a four-year degree, mm. that those kids that were rolling out of that community college ready to rock and roll are absolutely being excluded from. Um, and, and it's BS, right? So um, that, that's, that's, you know, that's a place where I get, get really frustrated because I, I believe um, that when you look at the number of unfilled jobs in the geospatial you know, intelligence sector, right? I'm going to talk about it in its largest form. Um, we need lots of Austin community colleges kicking out people with those types of skills. And we can't be looking down our nose at them because they don't have a four-year degree. Um, and we got we to get over ourselves on that. That's another thing. Um, you know, look, I'm, I've, I've become a space guy. That's kind of how I got into this business, actually sideways from being an infantry officer and being becoming a military intelligence officer and being thrown into a unit uh, that had downlinks to, to satellites. And, you know, I, I had no idea, but the, the army's good like that. The army throws you in the pool and says, you know, this would be a great time to learn how to swim. And Bill, we'll be right up here on the deck, giving you tips and tricks. Um, and, and we probably won't let you drown, you know, and that's, that's how you learn in the army. So, I came in through through the space door and then got increasingly engaged in, in geospatial. So to me, they're inexorably tied. But this idea of a geospatial moment is, if you go back to 2008, the uh, public broadcasting affiliate of Penn State 
put together a web series called the geospatial revolution. And obviously it's 14 years dated at this point, but it's still worthwhile. And I think lots of us in this business struggle to explain to our parents, to our uh, significant others, to friends, what we do, right? Because as soon as you start saying geospatial or mapping, you know, the, the, the conversation turns to the weather or sports or anything other than, you know, what we're talking about. So, um, I mean, I can hook people with spy satellites, but if you, you know, anyway, I do. So, um, this idea of the geospatial moment, think about that geospatial revolution that was sort of, uh, run, uh, and, and I commend you to people who don't get what we do. The series was really well done. The intent was to do a series of shorter videos, release it online periodically, and then pull them all together at the end, um, and make it a PBS special. And they kind of ran out of money before they got to the to the last part. But the, but it's um, it's it's really it, it has worn well. There's still good stuff to be learned in there for people who are interested at the basics of what we do and how we do it. So in around so that was that was 2008. And around 2016, I kind of looked around and I said, hmm, I think we might be at like this geospatial intelligence revolution. And it was the convergence, right? Then that's what a revolution is, this collision, this convergence of things that then creates a culture change that is sort of a shock to a system and creates a, a, a new way of doing business. And so I looked at it and, and we wrote an article and, and said, all right, so we've got ubiquitous geo you know, uh, positioning you know, by the devices we wear in our pocket. Um, and we're all tracking ourselves and providing that tracking information all over the place. And we've got this explosion in remote sensing capability. And we've got the expansion of broadband. And we've got more powerful software. And we've got the advent of things like GPUs. And we've got the cloud. And we've got IoT. And we've got AR, VR, XR. Um, and you know, computer vision. And we took all that together. I said, man, I think we're at this geospatial intelligence revolution. And all that has churned, and a lot of that stuff was happening in the national security sector, driven by you know um, just unimaginable amounts of money being put into the forever wars, right? Um, in, in the wake of 9/11, um, to, to to bring our troops home in one piece, um, and and so as that investment was made, as that kicked off into other parts of the economy, as innovation occurred. Uh, in, in the commercial world, I think it's brought us to this really interesting moment where geospatial, and we're living in like a location economy. Um, <laughs> let's just, let's do a quick survey, right? So other than maybe some experimentation they're doing with autonomous vehicles, Uber is a location company that doesn't own a car, right? Apple and Snap <laughs> and Microsoft and Salesforce um, have all, every one of them, I think, has acquired somewhere between eight and 10 mapping companies, right? So those are all mapping companies, um, in addition to all the other things they're doing. So when you just start, I guess what I'm doing, and I feel like I'm um, creating the, the closing argument in a, in a court case to prove it's the geospatial <laughs> moment, right? Um, and then uh, I can do this all day. So um, when you just start adding up the evidence, it just suggests to me, I mean, what's an autonomous vehicle except a rolling integrated geospatial intelligence platform yep. 
um, that both has onboard sensors and processing, that has onboard uh, embedded map and location data that's connected to GNSS, that's connected and communicating to other vehicles in the network and, 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 but all of that stuff, smart cities, digital twins, everywhere we look. Now, look, all of us on this podcast and probably almost every listener are biased to want to agree with what I'm saying because it's what we do. <laughs> but I think I could convince somebody and I do it often because I'm talking to investors and I'm, I'm doing due diligence calls for the companies I advise in which, in, in which I'm invested. I really have no trouble making the case that this is the geospatial moment, that we are in a location-based economy um, and that, that uh, you either got to know this um, to be competitive or you're going to lose to your competition. Oh man. I, I, I just probably should be quiet again. So many things to say. I think Mark Zuckerberg would agree. I think he started calling it meta <laughs> and yeah. uh, kind of wrapping this all together. And then I was thinking about, you were giving these examples like Uber. And for some reason, my mind went to the game Pokemon go mm. and the geospatial backbone on just a game that uses augmented reality with a smart device, with a GPS that interacts with your environment. I, uh, I think we're in the geospatial moment, but, uh, Kent, what were you going to say? No, Connor, go ahead. Buddy. Oh yeah. Like, a, oh, like I, I use them as a, uh, as, as a reference point, a lot on this podcast, but look at Amazon, like what they're doing from an acquisition standpoint and what their, you know, their model is like, yeah, we all know that he started selling books and that's great, but he was a hedge fund manager before that. And you got to realize like he's a logistics person right now like they're in the business of logistics data and location yep. like that is what they do and and what their their technology basis on is all location data from a drone standpoint uh, uh coming in like with the vans and the logistics behind all that stuff it's it's crazy how uh we don't realize how much that uh that it, that affects our life like i challenge people if they don't believe it's the geospatial moment and i'm not even i'm in the industry but like from a side view of it uh but like I, I challenge somebody to turn their location services off on their phone for 24 hours and see <laughs> see how that goes. Get around the world there. Yeah, it's something we rely on. It's, it's 24/7, true. 24/7, no question. So Nick, let me let me jump in here because this is uh, you just threw a big softball. So I'm um, there is a there's a guy out there who's published an article, and he says that um, Pokemon Go is actually. <laughs> an entire effort by the central intelligence agency mm. to track us and know where we are, you know, starting with our kids um, and, uh, you know, to get us to do it in an insidious way. And he makes a really compelling argument, especially if you're a conspiracy theorist, because I'm going to trace something for you. Mm. So around uh, the late nineties, there were some guys in a garage who were looking at a different way, using compute power to have a different way of looking at the earth. And uh, they invented something called Keyhole. And Ooh. Keyhole was <laughs> yes, um, a fascinating way to do things. I was working at the national, then the National Imagery and Mapping Agency at the time. InQtel had been founded, which was the CIA, for lack of a better term, venture capital operation. It was uh, the director of the CIA went to Congress and said, look, I'm not going to be able to compete technology wise unless I can be out there and be involved in Silicon Valley and be placing bets on behalf of the things we need, the things where we want to 
um, push the envelope on technology for national security purposes without having to go through massive government contracting. So NQTEL exists. NQTEL comes to us at the National Imagery and Mapping Agency and said, look, we found these keyhole guys. Um, this isn't really something that we necessarily would do for the CIA, but we thought maybe you would really like this. And so for the first time ever um, at that time, money was moved from the National Imagery and Mapping Agency to the CIA to give to NQTEL, to give to Keyhole. Keyhole was later acquired by Google, oh. and it has become what you know today as Google Earth. That's great. And then I Google Earth Engine. Now, there are many things along the way. I know you're, you're chomping to get in, Nick, right? And Brian, <laughs> Brian McClendon and others who end up going to Uber and managing the early days of Uber well, the descendants, the founders, one of the founders of Keyhole um, is the person who brought you Pokemon Go. So there is, an, there is wow. a journalist who has meticulously traced all this. Um, and through the lens of a conspiracy theorist, that Keyhole bet in the late 90s brings you um, Pokemon Go today, which is why the CIA is tracking us all. Um, all I can tell you is I've lived on the inside of almost all of it, and that's not true. But boy, is it a compelling article because everything in the article, other than the conclusion, is fact-based. Anyway, Nick, I saw you uh, chomping at the bit. Uh, so you're sort of a living legend. And so I was at a SPAR 3D conference in Colorado Springs seven or eight years ago. And the, um, the key, uh, keynote speaker was one of the founders of KML. Uh, keyhole mark, markup language and uh, the code behind Google Earth for everybody who's listening. And uh, I sat in line for about an hour and I, I it was like I was at a I was at a Grateful Dead show ready to get my Jerry Sig. And I, I literally sat there and I waited and I have this great photo of me shaking his hand. So I, I love hearing that. That's a great story. <laughs> Yeah, it's so interesting. And the whole geospatial moment idea, I mean, I, I have no doubt. I completely agree with that. And I, I, I love that way of, of coining it. But I, it's, it's more than a moment. You know, I mean, this is, this is the start of just incredible things to come. Well, and, and um, you know, Connor, again, you're, you're in our business now, but you come right with this finance background. You know, one of the things, another um, party trick I do when I'm, when I'm up on stage giving a keynote or what have you is say, hey, Shout out a sector of the economy and uh, see if you can stump me on how I can connect it to geo, right? Or geospatial intelligence. Um, and, it, and again, it's just too easy, right? Mm. Let, let's yeah. talk about precision agriculture. Precision agriculture, um, you know, maybe for another podcast, I argue is more of an aspiration right now than a reality. Mm -hmm. But there's tremendous opportunity there, whether it's in row crops uh, or in forestry and timber the things we're doing to understand and characterize uh, soil moisture and understory and uh, LIDAR to manage trees, to manage uh, understanding with hyperspectral, you know, what needs fertilizer and what doesn't, what mm -hmm. needs water and what doesn't. So boom, you can go right down the road. What, what's being put into, I mean, what's the worst thing a, you know, a farmer can do when they're in their tractors, like touch anything, right? Because it's all being managed by GPS and the data that's being fed in, in terms of a prescription map that's articulating where to, oh, Michael T. Jones. So, um, yeah, that's Michael T., Nick, um, may he rest in peace, passed away um, uh, a couple of years ago and is just a, a hero of our community, but one of the founders, indeed, of um, 
Google Earth. So anyway, back to precision agriculture, back to uh, commodities trading, right? We used to have people that maybe got a petroleum degree, um, you know, at, at University of Texas, and then they went and they got a master's degree or an MBA, and then they worked in the Sears Tower, right? And they estimated petroleum reserves in Eastern Europe. Well, now with synthetic aperture radar, we're measuring floating oil tanks, and we're able to measure how high an oil tanker is sitting in the water when it arrives at the port and how low it is when it departs the port. And now I know exactly how much oil that ship took on. Huh. I'm watching the floating oil tanks and measuring them. There's no reason to sit in the Sears Tower anymore and guesstimate what the oil reserves are because they're measurable from space. So again, I can do this all day. You just go sector by sector by sector. And our business is changing it in a fundamental way. And um, that's fun. Well, I like fun. Keith because he's now giving me three points. I have I have two main points. Is like there's there's uh, there's uh, compounding interest touches everything. I don't care if you're off the grid or not. Like compounding interest is going to touch something. Um, but we all learn about compounds in high school, but not compounding interest. That's a side note. Uh, second is um, cybersecurity like security of, of assets. And, and I think cybersecurity plays a huge role into geospatial because of the location and privacy and all that stuff. And now geospatial comes into my third point of touching every single thing we do in life. I, it, you know, that's, that's where it's like, I want that sign on the college campus. I would love Keith to be that guy on oh, the yeah. college campus yeah. where it's like, it's like prove me wrong, exactly. like sign, like, yeah. and he sits there and has a coffee. <laughs> yeah. Good luck. Good luck with that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, cybersecurity, man, right? Like the, the joke in the intelligence community is um, that there's only two kinds of companies, right? Um, those that know they've been hacked and those that don't know they've been hacked. Oh, well, yeah. yeah. Oh, it's true. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's amazing to me. There's these companies like uh, Nearmap, I believe it is. Uh, free plug, don't get used to it. And these guys, you know, they, they have satellites that are orbiting the Earth 24-7, just taking imagery, high, you know, pretty much high depth Im imagery and then turning around and selling that imagery, you know, to to the general public. Um, it's incredible. I mean, I, and th and there's so much going on that I don't even know about. But, I mean, it, it's amazing to me um, how rapidly technology is advancing and how it is, it is changing our daily lives. Yeah, I mean, I think maybe maybe you're referring to to Planet Planet Labs, there it might be. Uh, and, and there's right? a company but, called NearMap, but uh, there, yeah, I'm there's sure there's company, others. There's a company called NearMap as well, yep. and yep. I mean, but there's there's exciting stuff going over again over every aspect of of our industry, whether mm -hmm. it's the proliferation of assets in space, yep. um, you know, increasingly um, a couple of companies that are working in the stratosphere, um, and you know, and that becomes like an, a really environmentally friendly way of doing imaging. So I, I, I'm an investor and advisor in a company called Near Space Labs, which is doing 10 centimeter imaging oh. from uh, very portable stratospheric balloons. And mm -hmm. so that's uh, changing the game with respect Crazy. to aerial imagery. Um, so th then we, you know, something Nick touched on earlier, uh, you know, what something I refer to as expanding the spectrum, right? So we've gone from electro optical imagery moving into synthetic aperture radar, which opens up all kinds of new things and possibilities with um, active imaging. I'm a huge card carrying fan of synthetic aperture radar and been at it for a long time. Infrared, being able to understand things uh, and, and image at night and understand heat signatures and then moving into multispectral and hyperspectral and LIDAR and all of those things. I mean, it goes to my toolkit analogy or, or metaphor earlier, which is all of these things are now going to be available. And before 
it might have just been uh, oh i have landsat oh i have spot mm. um, and landsat's a wonderful instrument it's it's doing remarkable things and what the europeans are doing with their constellation and and sharing that data broadly is is uh, incredible um the the new commercial remote sensing industry that new space world um bringing on remarkable capabilities and, and again that that's just that then we get into the thing the downstream stuff of the analytics and the things that are going on in geospatial and um you know companies that are that are using machine learning to get to artificial intelligence to do survey level um imaging from drones and aircraft and, yep. and soon space um getting getting over into data analytics just massive gpu accelerated analytics where volume used to be a problem and now it's a friend right because it's not it's not a, it's not a foe it's 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 revealing things because you have the processing power to actually get through it uh and then finally data visualization xr vr uh ar being able to be immersed in it it's not going to be presented in a flat uh, 2D environment, but we're going to expect to be in an immersive environment. We're going to expect to take people through, like if we're talking about the underground infrastructure, it's one thing to show it on some kind of blueprint. Yep. It's another thing to say, hey, Mr. Mayor, let's walk down into the streets and see where things are relative to one another and why it's so expensive to make a decision about drilling here or whatever. Um, it's going to make it more accessible, right? So just, again, across each of those four parts of you know, my definition of geospatial intelligence, we're just seeing these massive technological advances. And, uh, again, lots to be excited about. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, you're, you're super passionate about national security and how are all these different technologies and geospatial intelligence uh, affecting that? Well, I mean... If you told me, while I was certainly involved in commercial remote sensing, even you know during my time in the government in the um, you know the 2005 to 2008 timeframe, where I was working um, on in that job, where I was responsible for the organization that was doing the tasking of the imaging satellites and, and a bulk of the missile warning satellites, we we had predicted that this commercial remote sensing explosion was going to happen in the United States government and other governments. Uh, put in and continue to put in a lot of money. I, I still am amazed to be sitting in my living room, um, you know, every night seeing Maxar and planet and even, you know, uh, electro optical imagery, but moreover, I've seen on the news, you know, uh, synthetic aperture radar from Capella, a U.S. synthetic aperture radar company, mm -hmm. and knowing full well that ISI from Finland and others are also providing as well as Airbus but we're watching it on the nightly news. So, and, and part of our information strategy uh, with respect to uh, the Russians has been to release intelligence, right? To release, we called them out on all the things they were doing leading up to the invasion. We were, we were the United States government was releasing annotated images mm. um, from, that they'd purchased and licensed from commercial remote sensing providers and put analytics against it and said, here's what they're doing, here's where they're going. Um, and all manner of, of, of geospatial intelligence being released to the press so that there is this unprecedented level of transparency going on. Um, you know, I'm, I'm old enough to remember Vietnam. Vietnam was bought, brought into our living rooms in these little snippets on the evening news um, and reports. And it, and it had a very important impact on how the American people viewed and processed what was happening in the Vietnam War. 
Well, this war is playing out in this massive global transparency, um, some of which is occurring sort of organically and some of which is part of, um, you know, sort of geopolitical information operations uh, posturing. So geospatial intelligence from a national security perspective has never been more front and center than it is right now playing out during, um, you know, this, this tragic ongoing invasion of Ukraine by Russia. I saw a, uh, a recent um, article, or maybe I was reading it, and uh, you talk about, you know, seeing the nightly news, and you're seeing Maxar, and you're seeing all these different images, and uh, by the way, if you haven't heard about the NISAR satellite going up pretty soon, that's going to be a pretty fantastic uh, uh, INSAR satellite. But what I actually want to ask about is this this article was talking about the social media transparency. So you have this like eye in the sky view, top down bird's eye view of what's happening real time. And today I literally they were showing evidence of cluster bombs um, from commercial satellites. But the social media part is really interesting to me because it's that boots on the ground first time we're videotaping live action war. Any thoughts on that in, in the geospatial intelligence you know, concept or realm? Yeah, an aspect of that that I find really compelling, there's an organization called Bellingcat, right, which is doing open source intelligence. They are most well known for calling out Russia on MH17, the shoot down uh, of that Malaysian Airlines aircraft over uh, uh, over Ukraine that had come out of uh, I think Amsterdam, if I recall correctly. Um, and 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 they they pieced together uh, social media posts by Russian soldiers who were inside Ukraine and video that were you know taken by people's cell phone cameras and uh, information, data and information that was collected from space and stuff that was revealed during the course of the investigation. And it was just a compelling, holistic intelligence picture all put together with, with not a single classified activity <laughs> that laid out very clearly um, how Russians had brought uh, a book uh, and an aircraft system into Ukraine and accidentally fired uh, on that aircraft, believing it was a transport aircraft. Um, what's interesting also is, is along with this exploitation of open source information, or OSINT as it's referred to in the intelligence community, is the tradecraft that has emerged to your point around how do I, and, and you hear this on, on CNN, certainly, when they show a piece of video and they now say almost every time, uh, CNN has been unable to independently confirm the location where this video was shot. Or conversely, CNN has been able to independently confirm. There is a whole art and science that has developed around being able to take a piece of video, even if you don't have the embedded location data in the metadata, uh, which makes it kind of easy. Um, but, uh, and being able to, to say, this place on the ground is this place I can see, and it, it correlates with this place on a map. And I can definitively say that this video was taken from a cell phone, which was sitting here facing this way at about this time of day. And I can correlate that and, and call it, call it true. Right. Mm -hmm. And say it aligns with where the source says they were. And this is a classic intelligence community thing, right? Just, what do we do independently 
to verify that a source has given us um, uh, true information is to in independently verify it. Um, you know, this goes back to some of the things, um, you know, and they've wised up now, but in North Korea with um, uh, videos that were being shot there and still images that were being taken there, uh, it goes back to Osama bin Laden. So um, the idea is I can see the mountain formation behind Osama bin Laden in a picture, a still picture or a video. How do I do an analysis of what the minerals are in there and where do those, where do the mineral deposits of that type exist in an area <laughs> of the country where we know him to That's be? Crazy. And boom, we've nailed him down to, um, you know, with a lot of precision exactly where he is. And it's the same thing with things that got called out um, and why, why we see the North Korean dictator put fake backdrops behind himself because if he is ever trying to shield where he is, people were calling him out almost as soon as that stuff popped on social media because Crazy. it just became this, this skill set that many people had. So yes, all of these sources of information are fascinating. I think it's the, again, this art and science and tradecraft that's grown up around it that is really, really exciting because it's, it's bringing everybody into this field, right? Whether they know it or not. Yeah, you touched on something. hate to joke. Oh, no, 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 go ahead, Nick. Go ahead. I was just going to make a poor joke and say uh, Pokemon Go question mark. So <laughs> 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 how do you know what's happening? Pokemon Go. I, I don't know. Going back to conspiracy. Yeah, there you go. You know, they, they see the, uh, the link up between the social media. Yeah, no doubt. Um, you, you mentioned uh, digital twins uh, a few minutes ago, and that's, you know, that's a term that's been thrown around a lot lately. Um, how is that going to alter our lives moving forward? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated by it. Um, I would say that, that um, maybe, you know, I, I, I say that precision agriculture is an aspiration, not, a, not an actuality. I'd say that digital twins are slightly ahead of, um, of, of, of precision agriculture, um, but, but it's still largely aspirational. But the ability to take a building and to replicate it in a digital environment and to understand how it was built, um, what the stressor, the physical stressors are on that building, where the electrical load is managed in that building, how fiber is moved through that building, what that building does in space and time as it relates to other pieces of infrastructure, right? So how much wastewater is coming out of that building on, on what periodicity and what's the, what's the, what are the peaks and valleys uh, uh, look like? And so what kind of strain does that then put on um, wastewater management and sewers, uh, and so forth. Um, what happens when a city has been, um, wired, uh, and, and the antennas are up for 5g and then you add a new building. Mm. Um, well, you, you can understand that before you ever put the building up, but we used to, what we used to do and what we still do in a lot of places is we put a building up and then AT&T or Verizon or whomever start getting phone calls about where there's a dead zone because the signal environment's been perturbated and things have changed and uh, antenna need to be moved. Well, that can all be anticipated in advance now. If I have a digital twin of a city and I understand where 5G um, uh, is propagated uh, from a signal perspective and I model bringing in a new building and the materials that will be used in that building, I can understand how the 5G signal environment's gonna change as a result of that building and make allowances before it ever happens. So 
um, you know, you could just go on and on and imagine just like uh, Connor talked about, you know, the found the locational foundation upon which Amazon and UPS are, are built and the efficiencies and the effectiveness that they're able, right? The famous use case of UPS largely eliminating left turns on their routes, right? Because mm -hmm. they discovered that, um, you know, three right turns were more efficient uh, and effective from a fuel perspective, et cetera, uh, than idling and waiting for a left turn. Um, just think about that on steroids when we start to be able to have digital twins and we have smart cities and we have smart grids and, and, and uh, you know, we think now about how we use compute power or cloud uh, storage, right? How we can spin up compute power for what we need and then spin it down. We're not buying it, having it on-prem and having it sit there paid for when nobody's using it, right? That's the beauty of processing in the cloud is it's there when you need it and you're paying for it by the pound and somebody else is maintaining it, someone else is managing it, someone else is upgrading it. Well, those same sort of efficiencies and effectiveness uh, you're going to be able to get when you can manage a building. I mean, shoot, just I've got smart um, thermometers in, in you know, um, thermostats in my house that understand who's in what rooms over time and makes adjustment for how it's going to manage the cooling and heating. And it understands who's moving through which rooms. And so when you just start to think about the possibilities, um, I mean, it's sort of mind blowing, right? And, and again, it all comes back to being able to understand location. How are you going to get to digital twins? You got to go from a pixel, which is a flat representation of something to a voxel, right? Which is cubic. And now you got to be <laughs> able to stack voxels over time. So I can describe, you know, Heretofore, we could say, all right, this telephone pole is this high. We know that that telephone, that, that that line, that transmission line, let's say if it's an electrical pole, droops from point A to point B. But we haven't. We just know that most things might tell might tell us there's an electrical line there. In a voxelated world, I can say exactly. I can say with precision where that line is and where it isn't. I can say that the the utility closet on the third floor of a 20 story building is not just room 310 U or whatever, but it has a voxelated, um, you know, it, it is a voxelated address in, in space and actually in 4D in space and time, if somebody moves that uh, utility closet to the other corner of the building, um, there's a record that it was once over here and it was moved over there and I can track again uh, in voxelated space, how all that happened. So um, I'm just incredibly excited about what we are going to do in our business as we take advantage and apply those types of tool sets. Nick, go for it, my friend. So I'm not sure you've heard of this, Keith. There's a group um, called the Earth Archive Virtual Con uh, Congress, and it's a, a multinational uh, effort with MAPS, USGS, ASPRS, OGC, among many, many others, but they are advocating that we make a digital twin of the entire earth. And as part of that, they have uh, adopted this concept of the voxel cube. And I would love for you to tell all the geoholics listeners out there, tell us about what actually a voxel is. This is kind of a new concept yep. and uh, maybe relate it back to Minecraft. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, so um, nice try trying to stump me, Nick. Um, I spoke at the, at the conference. 
Um, I know that <laughs> I'm working to help them uh, and very, very, very familiar with that effort and, you know, how they're looking at, uh, you know, um, culturally critical areas of the earth first and trying to capture that um, as, you know, it gets eaten away by rain and time and forest and, and you know, people taking historic things apart. But uh, that effort to make a digital twin of the earth and to capture where we are so we can measure where we are going goes very much to, you know, right, Kent, to some of the things we talked about early on in the podcast. So um, I'm often told that I have this gift for taking complicated things and making them simple. Um, it's actually because I ain't really so bright. And so I have to understand it on a simple level. So it's Amen. not like I'm dumbing anything down. Amen. I have to dumb it down for me, right? So this is here. I'll, here's how I'll take you to what a voxel is. A pixel is flat. A pixel is this thing that's, that describes, right, um, a, a measured flat square. Um, and growing the voxel out of it is making it into a cube. And so you can describe cubic space. And so you can stack them and you can understand uh, and articulate it. And then if you imagine a slider bar going back and forth through time, my exemplar of the utility closet on the third floor moving from one corner to another during the course of a renovation or an upgrade, I can have a voxelated value for where that utility closet was. I now add a voxelated value for where it is but I'm able to characterize and articulate and capture and record where it was. So I can take a slider bar back in time and go, oh, that's why those boreholes were are, are over there in that area. Because, you know, once upon a time when this building was built, the utility closet was there. And during the renovation, six years later, it was moved over to this mm -hmm. corner because the new tenant wanted to do something else with the space. And um the ability to do that uh, and capture and have a digital twin of the earth, again, starting with culturally important areas, allows us to have a slider bar to understand and characterize and document change over time. Um, you know, the, there's some people, and, and I'm, again, an, an, an advisor um, to, to this company, a company called Voxel Maps, which is doing the same thing, right, which is integrally involved in bringing a voxelated world, which is part of supporting getting to digital twins, getting to characterizing things uh, and then being able to, to understand it in 4D where that fourth dimension is time. So I don't know if that was, uh, if that was helpful, but that's how I understand. It. Yep. Very helpful. Albert Einstein said simplicity is your, well, I said take complex situation and make it simple or something like that. But I, Dan Gilbert from Quicken Loans said that simplicity is genius and he's a billionaire. So <laughs> I, I appreciate that, Keith, because I'm not the smartest either, and I try to make things simple. And supposedly, that's that's not a known thing. Yeah, you heard Connor Reed earlier. It's not good. Hey, 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 <laughs> Matt, numbers, <laughs> numbers, and ideas. So just uh, just briefly, well, like, I, like I said, um, you know, my kids know um, when when the numbers started disappearing out of math. Man, I was done. Because <laughs> I woke up one day and there were no numbers in math anymore, and yeah. I was like, yep. Not can't no can do was already not too good at it to begin with, and yeah. then suddenly the numbers were gone and letters were there. So let, let me throw this out there. There's, we've talked about a lot of uh, you know really cool, really amazing things, but there's there's also a dark side to this. You know, we have the ability to collect all this data. Um, you know, there's a lot of uh, you know open source data available. 
that could also be dangerous. I mean, whose responsibility is it to, you know, manage this data? I mean, is, is, does the responsibility fall on anybody or, you know, what, what does that look like? Yeah, th- this is a huge conversation that we aren't having. And, it, and I think to a certain extent, it used to be overshadowed by, by this idea, right, that the government was following me. The government was going to know what I was doing. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I used to tell people, you know, when, when that, that phrase was bandied about, I was like, look, I work in the intelligence community. And all I can tell you is we can't even keep up with the stuff we have to know about overseas where all the threats are. So as interesting as your life might be, we don't have the time or energy to, to think about you or worry about you. So stop, you know, overinflating your importance to anybody thinking that anybody cares. Now, there were abuses um, that were that were called out. We have strict laws in place to protect the American people, in, in our case, from, um, uh, from government surveillance uh, and, and a FISA court and a whole set of things. And, and there were some abuses that, that have occurred over time. And those things are almost inevitably outed and, and dealt with. And, and that's for another conversation. But what we really need to be worried about, Kent, is what you talked about, which is unfettered um, access to our location data um, that's being bought and sold. I, I refer you to the John Oliver show from Sunday night, right? And I don't know how many of you saw it, but I'd commend it to you. Um, where he he went out and bought from openly available data brokers um, all manner of information about a bunch of senators, you know, and kind of has it in an envelope and says, uh, I'll open this envelope if we don't create some laws that protect people's privacy. And, you know, there's a, well, is it blackmail? Is he blackmailing them? Well, not really, because it was all available and it was all publicly available. And it was all, if you know who to talk to and you know where to go, you can buy it. Now your cell phone company will say, oh, Kent, you don't need to worry. I stripped your name off that database before I sold it. You're fine. I just separated it completely. Now, um, those of us in our business would say, okay, I don't know that this is Kent's phone, but it's interesting that it spends about eight hours a night at Kent's house. And then it usually goes to this place where Kent works. And then it usually goes to a store. And then it often ends up in the evening back at Kent's house. Now, this phone company didn't sell his name with that number. But it seems to go to the gym where I know Kent has a membership and it seems to go to the grocery store where Kent has a loyalty card. And this phone (laughs) seems to be associated with other people who are related to Kent. Um, I wonder if it's a reasonable expectation that I could um, take that disaggregated information and re-aggregate it and very precisely identify exactly who that phone number belongs to and what its activities are and to understand surfing habits because of cookies being dropped and because of characterization. We have a huge data issue, right? A huge data privacy issue. You, um, right? Like what, what's the thing saying, right? If it's free, you're the product. Mm-hmm. Um, and I try to be super careful about this, um, but I, I've certainly traded away. I've traded away my data and shopping habits at the grocery store in return for saving money. Um, I kind of wish mm-hmm. I'd never done it, but I do it now. I could certainly stop at any time. Um, you know, what you're doing at CVS when you use your CVS card or Walgreens with your Walgreens card or at the grocery store with your grocery affinity card, all those databases, um, are being managed and all that processing power and all that cloud compute that I talked about earlier is being used to manage this stuff. 
Um, and, you know, there are companies in, in our space, when you think about a company like Safegraph uh, or Veriset, <laughs> and, and you can have somebody say, I'd like to know how many soccer moms um, go by this corner after they have stopped at a, you know, a sweet green and before they go to Trader Joe's, you know, on Saturdays between this time and this time. Man, that's knowable. That's just absolutely knowable. And then again, if you go back to my previous comments about, you know, how easy it is to reassociate data about a specific person back to that data, it's just not hard. So we, we are so far behind the curve in terms of law and policy as relates to this data. This, this horse has not only left the barn, I mean, it's over the horizon. Uh, you know, and I, and I think that those of us of a certain age worry about this because we grew up with some expectation of privacy and we grew up with some modicum of privacy. Um, my kids who are between the ages of 19 and 27 don't really remember a time with privacy. They don't, you know, um, and so they don't necessarily feel that they've lost anything. Um, and, and so the, the burning platform for trying to do something to hold these data brokers accountable, um, our online habits, our shopping habits, everything we're revealing by the mobile phones that we're carrying around with us in terms of our, our location uh, data and information. Um, yeah, it's rough. It's rough. This is a really, really tough issue um, yeah. that, that we have lost track of. It's yeah. a security thing. It's a it's a total security and privacy thing. I mean, you see the SEC trying to get out ahead of it. And to Keith's point, it's like he this this horse was gone 10, 15 years ago, probably. Would you would you say that? I mean, I mean, it's it's ridiculous that this is something that can happen in society. And like I I, I saw uh, an article recently that there's uh, X amount of billions, if not trillions, of dollars being invested in trying to protect uh, information like this. And that, that comes from hacking and, you know, State Farm getting hacked or, or Target getting hacked or, you know, you down the road, like your location is being tracked and privacy is being tracked. So like, that's my concern. It's like, I go shop at, you know, Kroger uh, fries out here. And it's like, if they get hacked, then they have my information. These people have my buying habit. And, you know, I don't want to be too conspiracy theorist, but I'm old, I'm nervous and I'm, and I fall in that range. I'm 26. So no, I, I got bad news for you, brother. Um, they don't need to be hacked because they're selling no. your data. Yeah, that's true. Right? So um, now they'll, they'll say in some cases they're stripping your name off it, but how hard is it to take yeah. uh, shopping data and then put it back together with credit card data and put it back together with location data? Um, because if I can put your phone and your credit card at that register at the same time, I kind of know it's you yeah, right? or somebody you lent your credit card and your phone and your car to, right? Because that's being tracked. There's Bluetooth sensors um, in tire pressure monitors, right? That are communicating back with the mm. car. Yep. And each of those Bluetooth sensors um, has its own, has, has, has its own identification. So um, it's, it's not even about being hacked. It's not even about databases being hacked. They're being sold on the open market and they're being combined and recombined um, to reveal everything we're doing, right? The social network. I mean, this stuff is happening. 
And uh, yes, those of us in the location and the geospatial business, I think have a sacred duty to try and do something about this. I'm getting increasingly jaded about it though, mm -hmm. because I'm not sure how we get this proverbial cat even partially back in the bag at this oh, point. Crazy. Mm. Kent, Kent and Connor, this is, uh, I just want to make a plug to any VPN company owners out there that we would love to have a new sponsor for the program that provides VPN services that would block people from selling your identity <laughs> uh, through your ISP provider. Yeah. So if anybody wants to be a future investor uh, in the Geoholics and you have a VPN company, Good Please plug, Nick. Way to go. I like that. Um, though, you know, Keith, the word knowable is so powerful because if, if you think about it, I'm sitting here thinking about it for the last five minutes ever since you mentioned that. And I'm like, is there really anything that we do that isn't knowable at this point? If, if somebody really wanted to find out, you know, I mean, it's, it is, it's beyond scary. Yeah. And, and, you know, um, there's lots of debate about, um, you know, when I remember specifically a couple of years ago talking about forgetting my sunglasses uh, when I was going on a trip and, and then immediately seeing a sunglass ad on, oh, uh, yes. on Instagram. Right. Yes. And so the question is, were they accessing my microphone? Were they listening to me? Mm -hmm. The argument for a long time was, was no, it's totally, um, it's totally knowable. You were moving towards an airport. You had bought tickets to go to Florida why wouldn't we target you with a, with a, uh, a sunglass ad? You know, I'm, I'm reminded of the early days of Uber. Um, you may remember you didn't uh, put a location in, right? You just called for an Uber and then you got in and you told the driver where you were going. And I think I remember um, them briefing a statistic that they were somewhere in the mid 80s, around 85, 86% at being able to predict where you were going before you got in and told the driver. Right, based on who you were, where you were calling the Uber, what time of day it was, what persona you were, um, they they had a pretty good idea where you were going. So um, some of this stuff is still kept kind of close, and it, and it's unclear exactly in what ways our privacy uh, is being uh, violated and uh, deconstructed. Um, back to your question: Is there is there anything that's not knowable? Um, you know, I, I think you just got to you got to really work at it. You got to, you know, how deep into the settings of your iPhone or your Android phone are you going mm. to protect, right? Um, the, a lot of the new privacy well. features, I'm, I'm an, I'm an all in Apple guy. Um, and I've made it my, uh, I, you know, I, I've certainly endeavored to do everything I can to protect my privacy on, on my Apple devices and take advantage of the things they've offered to allow me to do that. But I do feel a little bit like it's like spitting in the wind, you know, yeah. it's like a, a Pyrrhic victory. I used to, when I would sign up for things, I'd throw in uh, a slightly wrong birth date or uh, a wrong middle initial, right? And I was like, man, I'm beating the man, right? Like that's going to that's gonna screw up the database. It's not going to match, you know, it's going to cause a problem. Um, but the processing power, you know, um, has certainly outstripped my ability to try and fool <laughs> fool the database uh, as yeah. to who I am. And, and uh, yeah. Yeah. A lot, everything, um, almost everything's pretty, pretty knowable. Pretty knowable. And, and especially yeah. if you are not taking active steps to try and protect your privacy. I mean, really it falls on us as individuals to try and grab back 
some scraps of privacy. <laughs> scraps of privacy. I love it. It's like Apple has a feature on there that you can turn off the voice stuff or like targeted ads, like those type of things. So like, because uh, it was I similar case. I um, forget what type of thing that I was talking about, but it comes up on my on my Facebook wall or whatnot. And next thing you know, I'm like, how do you turn this stuff off? How do you get rid of this? Because it's creepy and I don't want that. But to Keith's point, I sometimes feel like I'm pissing in the wind too (laughs) on this. It's like, how much is this going to help? Yeah, for sure. Well, Hey, before we get out of here, let's put a positive spin on this. Um, What are you excited about as it pertains to geospatial intelligence in the short term and the long term? Holy cow, man. It's like I said on the uh, stage yesterday in Branson, I was like, you all have skated to where the puck, you know, was going to be right. Wayne Gretzky. Why was I such a great hockey player? I skated to where the puck was going to be. I'll even, you know, as I said yesterday, I'll date myself or even further bill Russell, right. Just uh, a renowned rebounder. I got most of my rebounds before they even took the shot because Manny was just doing math. Where's, where's that guy on the court? What are his shooting habits? Where does he shoot? Where's that ball going to bounce? Where am I going to be? How do I box out the other person? So if this is, if we agree uh, in this, um, you know, choir of choir leaders here, as it comes to geo, <laughs> if we agree, this is the geospatial moment. And I threw you in there, Connor. So you're welcome. Yes. Thank um, you. Boy, I appreciate it. He's with the cool <laughs> kids. Um, uh, if this is the geospatial moment, then those 200 kids that are rolling out of Austin Community College and the people that are coming out of four-year degrees and the people that are stacking uh, certificates and certifications, man, this is their time. This is our time. We, they, have, they have met the moment. So the good news is if you are a geospatial person right now, man, you, you, like, you played the right numbers. Yeah. Like you, you put in the right time. You chose the right path you know you hedged properly right Connor yeah um now what are you gonna do so here's here's the here's the flip side and we talked about this you know several times what are you gonna do to stay there what are you going to do to keep yourself relevant what are you gonna do to incorporate and bring in and keep learning and keep growing and keep expanding and keep networking so that you remain um not just sort of relevant. I, it drives me crazy when people are like, oh, we're going to be relevant. I mean, holy shit. Like if relevant is like your high bar, um, oh, that's, yeah. I, just, I, don't, I don't get it. Like that's got to be like the base case. That's awesome. And then you want to be contributing on a whole nother level, a hell of a lot farther than relevance. So this is our moment. If you're a geospatial person, you, you've hit the lottery. Now you got to do the work to keep growing, keep moving, keep leading the pack, leading the way in this location-based economy um, because you've been dealt a great hand. Now it's how you play it. That's fantastic. Nick, did you have something else there? I just have to ask, uh, are you a fan of Michael Lewis, the author of Moneyball? Yeah, I mean, I I certainly... Um, have read it. I mean, what's not to love? Um, look, I've, I've got my, my aura ring on and I got my Apple watch on and I'm quantifying the shit out of myself um, in terms of uh, from a data perspective. And I'm pretty early on. I only I only got these for myself uh, in January. Um, well, if, and my girlfriend, and I got these for each other, the aura rings. Um, but man, data 
for I'm a poli sci guy, right? Like I, I haven't taken a math course since junior high school. I think I've made it very abundant where my uh, strengths and weaknesses are. Um, but boy, do I, um, do I love data and what data can tell us now. And now that again, that lots of data is our friend and not our enemy. It's not, it's not just stacking up, um, you know, in this untenable amount where we're just, we're just nipping at the edges of it. Like, Volume is our friend. Volume can tell us stuff. And the more data we have, the better decisions we can make if we're doing it properly. So yeah, Moneyball, statistics, but that doesn't obviate a place for gut feels, Hmm. right? Because gut to me is about Darwin. The people who listened to their gut lived and the people who didn't died. And so Darwin says that we should have a pretty good gut instinct and oh my gosh, just look over the past 20 plus years that we've proven the gut brain connection scientifically now. So a gut feel isn't just this um, thing that we imagine. So it's like anything else. What do we haven't even talked about AI and ML very much tonight, right? But what do the computers do well? What do the people do well? And how do you put them together to maximize the two? And that's Moneyball, right? You got to be a great manager, know those statistics. But at the end of the day, and that's what we hear the commentators talking about on the World Series um, or, or the Super Bowl, right? Statistically, do I go for two here? Um, but that doesn't account for what the intangibles of the momentum and the emotion of the game are. And that's where the experience and the gut feel comes in. And at the intersection of those two is where magic happens. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that, Keith. I mean, you look at uh, Brand Staley over in uh, L.A., the L.A. Chargers, like they missed the playoffs because he only does the quantitative side of things. And I think from an investment standpoint, a lot of people, you know, these these technical hedge funds and, and P.E. funds and these technical analysis have have grown from a strategy and then you've got your traditional fundamentalist, but it's like the word, the arbitrage is coming in right now with the market, I feel like, is is when you pair technical, a quantitative side, but with the fundamentals. And I think from your point, like that ties to geospatial too. It's like, how do you how do, you do both? Um, and then from a, I do have a question for you from an investment side or just an industry pers- specific, like what what intrigues you? Like, like what's some of the technology or industries that are, are interesting to you? Like I I'm, I'm interested in like the water and like what water is as an industry, but like from your standpoint, like what are you interested in? Yeah. So I, I have tended to stick within the realm of areas where I have, uh, you know, people have asserted I have expertise, right? So, um, I'm, you know, where am I invested as an angel investor? It's in, remote sensing, it's in um, uh, uh, small sats, right? Um, in in a, a, a company that's going to do 10 centimeter imaging, right, out of Austin, uh, the guys at Albedo. Uh, I'm engaged with a, the company called ISI. I'm engaged with a company called High Spec IQ. So there's the, the small sats. Uh, then there's the downstream analytics. What are we going to do with all that uh, data and information? Um, I'm involved in companies, uh, a company that's uh, mapping the moon. I'm involved in a company that's setting up a communication network to go to the moon. The moon in time, not space, is a hell of a lot closer than most people realize. Operations on the moon are going to become increasingly routine a lot sooner than most people realize. So there's going to have to be comms to the moon better than 9.6 dial up. 
uh, you know, based on 60s technology. There's going to have to be accurate mapping of the moon. Hey, the, the challenge of mapping the moon is the moon doesn't have the protection that Earth has. It's getting pummeled, right? So your map of the moon today is not great a month or six months or a year from now because the, the, the topography of the moon is changing, right? Um, so uh, I, I'm involved again, uh, you know, with the guys at, at, at Voxel Maps. I'm in guys involved with some guys uh, at a company called Zona, which is doing low earth orbit um, uh, positioning, navigation and timing. So it's really like across this whole continuum of, of a number of the things we've talked about this evening. There are these incredibly exciting technologies. Most of them, um, you know, with which I'm engaged are, are space-based in one way or another, but, but not all of them. There's a, a company called Airworks, which is uh, taking AI and ML to extract, um, you know, survey level data. Um, so um, I, I think this, this entire area of geospatial intelligence is remarkably rich and the startup scene and the investment, um, uh, it, it's just a really exciting time. And I feel very, very fortunate to be, uh, to be part of it. Fascinating. Well, I'll tell you this, we're very fortunate to have you yes. uh, here for this conversation this evening. And I, I feel like we're in the presence of greatness, to be honest with you. And uh, we, have this, we have this question that we ask all our guests. And at some point, we're going we're gonna to write a book, I believe. Um, do you have a mantra that you live by? Yeah, you know, and I, and I apologize because I, I used this once before um, when I did uh, uh, another interview, um, but it, it, it bears repeating. Um, and so, you know, you can use it in your book and thanks for your kind words. But I think one of the things I really live by is we are all where we are because somebody turned around or somebody's turned around and extended a hand to mm. give us a, a lift up at one point at multiple points in our personal lives and our professional lives. And as we go to me, that confers an inherent responsibility to turn around and do it for others. And I looked for, you know, it's why we talked about this idea of why I have mentor and connector right up on my LinkedIn profile, yep. because it's what I do. And I do it because I find it to be rewarding. Um, but I also find it to be an obligation. Uh, and, and you don't have to wait till you get to the top. I, I had a neighbor, um, some, some colleagues of mine, and, and I've known them forever. Um, some guys who went to a historically black, black college and university, I think um, several of them went to Hampton in Virginia. And they got jobs in the DC area and they immediately created a nonprofit. And someone was like, well, wait a minute, you guys are just brand new in the workforce. Like you're just getting started. Isn't it a little presumptuous for you to start a nonprofit to turn around and help others? And they called it, they called it um, lifting as we climb. And the idea was, we, yeah, so we, we are in our first jobs, but that means we learned how to do a resume and we learned interview skills and we learned salary negotiation and at the very least, we can turn around and talk to the seniors who are coming up behind us and the juniors and share that with them. And then every year that we grow in these jobs, we can turn around and do even more. And then they started partnering with NFL players and running camps for kids in inner cities. And it just grew and grew and grew. But I, I always remember that, that, that name of their organization lifting as we climb because people think sometimes, well, 
I got to be a CEO or I got to be a business unit president before I can help people. Um, man, I think you can help somebody today. If you're a sophomore, you can help a freshman, right? Um, what's more lost than a freshman. So, um, you, we are where we are because somebody extended a hand and helped us. And so we must in turn do it for others. I absolutely love that. So true. Oh man, Keith, it's an honor to, uh, to have met you and, and, and call you a friend. Um, I know we touched on a lot. There's probably a lot more we can get to. Love to have you back sometime. Is there anything else that you want to get out there before we no, uh, you're let ready you go? to be subjected to me again, man? Like yeah. we, we scratched, <laughs> we just scratched the surface. I know it, man. I, feel like, uh, I love it. I feel like Nick is going to pummel me with an email after this, with all the questions. <laughs> asked, I think so. you, I think he was typing it. Um, I think he was typing it throughout the show. Actually. I, I have enjoyed this so much. Um, it's so and true. I am so eager uh, to stay in touch with you guys and to listen sure. to you guys and maybe make some recommendations for some other folks who you might not organically run into in our field who can um, expand, you know, uh, how your audience thinks about things. But, uh, and I'd also love feedback, right? So I'm on Twitter at GeoInter uh, imaginatively, and um, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm very publicly available. And so if I've said something tonight that touched somebody, um, connected with somebody, spurred somebody to want to know more about something, um, you know, reach out and be, be persistent because I'm massively overcommitted. Um, but I don't find people being persistent to be, um, annoying at all. I find them to be, um, interested in being successful. So I always encourage people to be persistent. Thank you so much for the opportunity to rant and rave and pontificate and postulate. Um, it's just been a joy and I appreciate what you do. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, that that's humbling. And we, we appreciate the kind words, Nick, you got anything else, buddy? Just want to say thanks. That was a that was a great conversation, and I, I've drafted half the email, so I'll be in touch. <laughs> <laughs> and Connor, last but not least, what do you got? Anything? No, I think he's. I think it's awesome. I I think this opens the door for a lot of things. Sure does. Totally agree. All right. Well, let's uh, let's put a wrap on this one. Uh, adding value and making friends. That's what this is all about. We definitely uh, accomplished that this evening. Thanks again for listening to our loyal friends of the program, just like ProStar. Uh, thank you to them for believing in us. Be sure to mention you're a geoholic when you reach out to them. As I mentioned earlier, there are definitely exclusive listener promotions. Download the Geoholics app from LandSurveyorsUnited.com. Send us an email at info at thegeoholics.com. If you have any content ideas or would like to be a guest on a future show, I think we're actually booking into June at this point. Last but not least, pay it forward. Add value, make friends. Grateful Dead. Feel like a stranger available everywhere. Until next time, extend a hand to someone this week. And most importantly, be safe and healthy. Thank you to our 2022 Friends of the Program, Advanced Geodetic Survey, AGSGPS.com, Airworks, airworks.io, Bad Elf, bad-elf.com, Cyanic Automation, getjobbook.com, Diamondback Land Surveying, diamondbacklandsurveying.com, Extreme Aerial Productions, extremearialproductions.com, Get Kids Into Survey, getkidsintosurvey.com, Mentoring Mondays, mentoringmondays.xyz, Monson Engineering, monsonengineering.com, Nettleman LC Prep, lcprep.com, North Star Surveying, northstarsurveying.com, ProStar Corporation, 
ProStarCorp.com, Safety Apparel, SafetyApparel.us, TopoDot, New.Certainty3D.com, and finally, Trimble Geospatial, geospatial.trimble.com.